This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. And congratulations, you have found the internet's finest podcast for music to listen to next to a goat unicorn. So for this episode, we are continuing our series of Desert Island recordings, albums that were recorded or conceived or written in isolation. And are you ready, Joe? I think I am. Let's go. Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. In a sense, private press records are the ultimate form of isolation music. They're albums that are created completely on an island often recorded by a single person, usually created without any support or belief, always made without the assistance of a label to provide funding, resources, marketing, or expertise. Putting out a private press record is an act of faith, faith in yourself, that you are an undiscovered and misunderstood musical commodity, faith that you'll see a return on your investment, that the thousands of dollars you spend will come back tenfold with future riches, fame, and respect. Faith in your fans, the ones that don't yet exist, but will certainly fawn over you when they finally set the needle down on that shiny black vinyl, spinning at a perfect 33 and a third revolutions per minute. Faith in the system, that if you believe and you work hard, you will fulfill your destiny. Faith that someone cares and empathizes with your point of view. And finally, faith that you might not be alone. Of course, more often than not, this faith becomes one's downfall. The path to glory is littered with thousands of albums with ridiculous covers, horrific music, and broken dreams. And usually, the heroes of private press never get to relish the modicum of fame they garner amongst collectors. Their albums are often discovered long after they've been given away at shows or to friends or strangers on the street corners or sent to record labels and radio stations in the hopes that the right person will listen to it. The relevance is as old and dated as the person. Often the music, even the good music, isn't that good. The story of the how or why the album was made and The weirdo behind the music is usually more interesting than the songs. The small subset of subsets of record collectors needs your album because it is rare and in that scarcity, valuable, hip, and therefore desirable. 
or maybe the worst circumstance of all for achieving some meaning when the artist becomes popular because they're so odd, unhinged, or so terrible that they stand out like a glistening beacon of dysfunction in a junkyard of mediocrity. They become nothing more than a freak show pinhead, which is what they were trying to escape from the start. This isn't to say anything against private press. We absolutely adore it. We covered the topic in depth over the course of two episodes, 15 and 16, and even discussed having a separate podcast about private press records. We've acquired as many of these gems as we could, whether by amazingly good luck, excessive cost, or getting in on the multitude of repressings that these misfit records have started to enjoy. The private press record offers the ability to be the pinnacle of unencumbered freedom. What music is like when money isn't involved and societal expectations are shelved since they are set so far apart from any sort of mainstream connection. They have no context or reference point outside the artifact itself. Bob Trimble might be the king of the private press. He certainly checks most of the boxes that make a private press record highly sought after. Loner outsider musician, hilariously bizarre cover art, strange story, lo-fi recording, minuscule pressing, and cited as influential by big-name independent artists. However, what makes him the master of this lost domain is the music itself, which is gorgeously detailed, strangely attractive, shockingly accessible and engaging. Music that is not just rehashed and stylized, but something that lives outside the standard comfortable genre descriptors. Somewhere between acid folk, soft rock psychedelic, fuzzy space rock, and power pop with a streak of musique concrete. A dead Greek guy named Aristotle once surmised that the ability to persuade is reliant on the communicator relating to the audience on three levels, logos, pathos, and ethos. The power of Bob Trimble is that he puts his listener on unstable ground for all three areas, as it is truly difficult to ascertain the reality of his music, logically, emotionally, and ethically. No one knows exactly where Trimble stands. The kid from Massachusetts takes a jackhammer to expectations one might have for a private press record of this ilk. He is either an amazing musical genius who meticulously structured his songs, or a desperate madman who assembled albums together using found pieces from several distinct puzzles. And his emotional state is completely inscrutable, showing indifference to his audience's inner needs while letting his own heart bleed all over the record. The arresting singing shows the intricate fragility of a Fabergé egg and the desperately shallow constitution of a scarecrow being set aflame. The music is beautiful, with just the right amount of unnerving. The architecture of his sounds is familiar and atypical. His record, Iron Curtain Innocence, has to be heard to be believed. However, it was a record that no one wanted to hear.
idiosyncratic and hyperbolic as we absolutely always are, we certainly are not the only Bob Trimble apologists in the realm of music writing. A quote from the Private Press Bible, Acid Archives, starts with this description by Aaron Malensky on Bob Trimble. I will make the bold claim that Bob Trimble's two albums are the best self-released albums, not just of the 80s and not just the psych genre, but possibly in all of rock. Bob's music is able to bring a listener into a new and bizarre world in mere seconds. While both his first album and his second, Harvest of Dreams, are otherworldly masterworks of detached psychedelia, today we're going to focus on the first. There are so many amazing private press albums that are true isolation records. 1980's Iron Curtain Innocence is a perfect example for this case study because of its utterly unique sound and the decent amount of information available about the record, which helps us a lot. It's a story that can be told with realistic honesty, whereas so many other private press records are just rumors and tall tales. In the beginning, Bob Trimble owned just three rock and roll records. The Beatles' second album, More of the Monkees, and a Dot Records oldies collection featuring the classic Sea of Love by Phil Phillips. These records would carry a weight that would mold Trimble's sound. The Beatles' buoyant harmonies, the Monkees' mirthful melodies, Phillips' soul-stirring reverb, Growing up in central Massachusetts, Trimble would eventually play in bands in high school and would end up on the outskirts of Worcester's Wormtown scene, which was primarily known for punk music. Trimble worked at his dad's bicycle shop and poured all his money into studio recordings and eventually into getting his records pressed. Iron Curtain Innocence started its journey when Trimble wrote a song that he thought would make for a great single. One Mile from Heaven. He firmly believed it would be the track that brought him recognition. It was also one of the first songs he'd ever written. He went to a nearby studio called Country Thunder Sound and recorded a couple versions of the song, a longer, more complete version, and a shorter, more radio-friendly version. The song he recorded for the B-side was called Killed by the Hands of an Unknown Rock Star. When Trimble received the completed 45, he was disappointed with the hollow, tinny sound and decided not to release it. Dismayed, he thought about hanging it up and stopped recording for about a year, stating, I just didn't think my songs were original enough and different enough. Boy, howdy. <laughs> he came back with a redefined vision of originality. He went to a couple other studios and recorded an album's worth of material. Iron Curtain Innocence was recorded without a band, despite the violent reactions being credited on the record sleeve. It was just Bob with a couple of the studio engineers helping out on bass and drums. The recording is rudimentary and lo-fi, but at the same time, it is distinctly layered with Beatles-esque sound tricks and sprinkles of Moog embedded throughout. The engineers seem to be excited to fully humor all of the bizarre studio requests as a break from their normal ho-hum desires of the usual patrons. Where the drums are obviously vanilla, the guitar is very distinct. For a young, inauspicious musician, Trimble truly had a remarkable guitar sound that is fully realized and instantly recognizable. 
which is certainly an exception from the typical boilerplate instrumentation of most private press records. Hell, even a lot of the major label stuff too, for that matter. Trimble's voice is, without question, the most enticing factor on the record. A Martian siren song that has an exotic, glassy, feminine presence that soaks a room in dizzying desperation. Reality tearing. Beautiful for certain, but also very cold. It's much closer to Mark Bolin warbling as he's using his feather boa to restrict his airpipe during autoerotic asphyxiation, or Sid Barrett trying his hand at opera, than it is to any of his beloved 60s silky vocalist. The lyrics reek of loneliness, but in a clove-smoking teenage poet sense more than a man at the end of his rope. Tired tropes and tiny fragments of generic psychedelic forgeries are present, but still pack an emotive punch when joined with that ethereal voice and the scintillating guitar. Originally called World of Lies, Trimble settled on the title Iron Curtain Innocence as a statement on the ever-presence of the Cold War, a theme that never seems to come up in the actual lyrics. Trimble had 500 copies pressed, bought the first 300, and dispersed them as best he could by hawking them at local record shops, getting them in the hands of college radio DJs and giving them to friend and family. (laughs) Trimble also sacrificed his childhood stamp collection gifted to him by his grandfather to mail copies to every radio station that had an address he could track down. It's especially sad since his grandfather had to carry those stamps in his anus back from the war. (laughs) After slowly getting through the first set, Trimble wanted to pick up the remaining 200 discs, but the Enterprise Company informed him that they were lost in a fire. Though there seems to be evidence that they made their way into record store cutout bins. As we discussed before... Often, Vanity Press records draw interest from collectors through the cover art of the album and the potentially romantic provenance of its creation. The music notwithstanding, the renown of Iron Curtain Innocent was certainly aided by the cover and Trimble's band. The original cover was a black-and-white copy of a picture from a cut-rate mall portrait J.C. Penney or Sears Studio. A disinterested Trimble sits blank-faced, in a blazer and jeans with his trusty Gibson SG across his lap while brandishing an assault rifle. It's silly, and more than a little foreboding. It's an unforgettable image that could have only been released on private press because there would be teams of PR folks forcefully executing the good judgment to not have this cover anywhere near their product. Thank goodness no one stopped it, though, because... It's a perfect image for the record, even though one couldn't possibly imagine the sound contained within upon laying eyes on Trimble's cold, dead stare. Killed by the hands of an unknown rock star, indeed. And for an extra bit of hero worship, a small dedication on the back cover reads, Dear John, Paul, George, and Ringo, If I'm a good boy and work real hard, may I please be the fifth Beatle someday? Your friend Bob. Remember, this was 1980. No doubt Trimble was living a bit out of time and maybe a little bit out of touch. The second legend around the record involves Trimble's band's maturity immediately following the recording of Iron Curtain Innocence. 
Trimble attempted to recruit like-minded individuals so that he could start playing out, but found most musicians in his small town were too into heavy rock for his liking. So he took a different approach. He recruited a bunch of young, like really young, pre-adolescent 11, 12-year-olds from the neighborhood, provided them instruments, and taught them to play his songs. Think like the Shag's father, but without guardianship. The band was named The Kids. They played just one show at an athletic club park, probably because, well, you know, bars didn't let in 11-year-olds. But they did record one track that ended up on Trimble's second record, Harvest of Dreams, called Oh Baby. wonder how he recruited these kids. Where did he find them? He uh, climbed down to the sewer and just started calling out for kids. Hey, you, you, want, you want to join a band? A white van with homemade candy? It's got the back open and a fake cast on, pushing a couch up. You about 11? <laughs> as weird and perhaps unsettling as a 23-year-old fronting a band of preteens... We didn't find any real reason to believe there was anything nefarious going on. Nonetheless, the parents, rightfully, weren't especially fond of their children spending late nights in a recording studio with this older guy and put a kibosh on the group. Trimble would eventually recruit another band of youngsters, though slightly older, around 15, who would become the Crippled Dog Band, named after Boopsy, one of the band members' poor limping mutt. This band did end up playing out some, but didn't last especially long. Again, the parents weren't very happy with it all. The Crippled Dog Band eventually cut a record in 1984, but Trimble threw all 500 copies in a dumpster after the band broke up. Trimble later said that he had heard John Lennon did the same thing. Of course, Ringo probably didn't mind digging Let It Be out of the trash, since he was already in there looking for leftover hot dogs. Fortunately, his cooler head prevailed and saved the masters. Though not really a huge factor in the albums, Trimble's association with juvenile bands brought equal amounts of intrigue and scrutiny to his music and cult status. Truthfully, it mostly seems like he was a talented and bored kid who just loved music, and like many bored, talented kids who love music, it's kind of strange. Trimble released a second album called Harvest of Dreams in 1982. Arguably a stronger set of songs than his first record, Trimble was starting to pull together some of his more disjointed aspects into a focused vision of psychedelic folk. Of course, it still had some fantastic private press weirdness, including the kids' song we mentioned earlier, and a song called The World I Left Behind, which is 2 minutes and 12 seconds of silence and a blotchy cover of Trimble staring at some sort of goat unicorn. Essentially a companion piece with an oddly similar structure to his first record, where Iron Curtain Innocence was an unraveling ball of talent, isolationism, and obsession, 
Harvest of Dreams starts to spool it back together, showing a glimpse of an alternate dimension where Trimble finds his much sought-after fame. The Acid Archives review summarily declares, There is no album I own that has as much emotional complexity and depth as Harvest of Dreams, said someone who owns one album. <laughs> Here's that album's lead-off track, Premonitions, The Fantasy. Bob Trimble continued to play clubs and coffee shops throughout the first half of the 80s, though he never even played Boston, despite it being only about 50 miles away. He never really made any sort of an impact, however, with his music and seemed destined for private press purgatory. It was a connection that he made on the scene that kept a small ember of a music career burning. Chris Thompson was in a Clark University band called the Prefab Messiahs, who were a sort of da-da, new-wave, neo-psychedelic outfit. He received a copy of Iron Curtain Innocence after talking with Bob as he was peddling his record at the college radio station. Thompson loved visionary music and formed a bond with Trimble. A few of the prefab members helped out on Harvest of Dreams, and Trimble returned the favor by playing Tone Sweep Generator and Backward Bass on this bouncy 1983 track called Desperately Happy. passed without success, so Bob Trimble stopped making and playing music. All this time, Chris Thompson continued to sing the praises of his records. Slowly, people heard these elegantly fantastical records by the guy with a guitar and a gun who played with a bunch of kids. Like David Koresh. (laughs) Eventually, as private press records are wont to do, the album started gaining value. As word spread, dusty copies were resurrected from dollar bins to attain exclusively high-selling record hound status. Soon you'd have to drop a grand and a half to procure a copy of the Lush Relic. Indie icons like Ariel Pink and Thurston Moore would start to name-drop Trimble, which only added fuel to the fire. In 1995, a CD comp called Jupiter Transmission finally brought his sound to the masses, or at least maybe made it discoverable. I don't think it ever made it to the masses. Then a bunch of bootlegs started appearing. Finally, in the late 2000s, Chris Thompson, who had safeguarded the master recordings, brought the idea to the label Secretly Canadian to reissue Trimble's record, which finally saw the light of day in 2007. 
Trimble, who at the time of the reissues was an unemployed coffee-chugging chain smoker in bad health, has since continued playing with a new band called The Flying Spiders, which includes Thompson, and has even released some lost tracks and stuff from the Cripple Dog Band. His legend as a private press master has grown. His albums still sound as timeless as ever. Let's take a minute and listen to a few of the tracks. The lead-off track, Glass Menagerie Fantasies, starts like it's being transmitted from inside a partially completed pyramid of a forgotten culture. As it spins and twirls, it emits broken toy sounds as Trimble's voice wavers and phases in and out, clearly indicating that the listener is in for quite the experience. Trimble states that he was supposed to read the Tennessee Williams play when he was in high school, but never actually got around to it. He wrote the song based on what he thought the book was probably about. As Tom Wingfield might say, truth in the pleasant disguise of illusion. Of course, Bob Trimble wouldn't know that. Ooh, singer. That was probably the funniest thing I heard about this album when we were researching it, is his comments on it being about a book he hadn't even read, and saying it like it was no big deal. Doesn't Dylan do this? Doesn't Neil Young do that? You think there's any other of these uh, audio uh, cliff notes <laughs> that he just kind of makes up? Listening to Bob Trimble is how Mark David Chapman got the summary of Catcher in the Rye. <laughs> Night at the Asylum is a deeper step into the psyche. The added sound effects, spoken words, and Halloween witch laughing should make the song super cheesy. But it actually reinforces an underlying darkness that maybe the boy ain't all there. This song is super creepy, but it shouldn't be. Like, if another well-known band had done exactly this, it would be laughably bad. It would be terrible. But why does it work when he does it? Yeah, even the name Night at the Asylum is so, like, stupidly generic. 
Yeah. And and I mean, when you first hear that witch laughing, you're like, this is this is horrible. And then it's just like he doubles down and then goes deeper and deeper to the point like, oh my gosh, this is really not easy to listen to. If you are listening to this at night, you turn the lights back on. An airy garage rave-up, When the Raven Calls, was Trimble's attempt to combine David Bowie's Space Oddity, Edgar Allan Poe's The Raven, and the Night of the Raven episode of Wild Wild West into a cohesive song. Space Oddity Part 2, he said. But, you know, with ravens. The monster that rumbles out of that mashup is far more unsettling than Ray Lewis rapping at a chamber door or a spaceman slowly floating away from Earth. With a touch of bravado, Trimble puts both versions of One Mile from Heaven on the record, on the same side. Side 2 starts and finishes with the envisaged hit. Honestly, Trimble's instinct is probably true that One Mile is the most accessible track, uh, tracks I guess, on the record. It has a smooth groove that ascends perfectly to the chorus, which is infectious. The guitar work is impeccable, and truly, in a different world, this song could be a feel-good hit played on the radio at barbecues, make-out parties, and the kill floors of a rendering plant. One more step and you walk out the door Never to return to me All I want is for you to be mine song Killed by the Hands of an Unknown Rockstar was originally supposed to be on Trimble's single, which partially helps explain the gun-toting cover photo. A more straightforward, country rock, laid-back vibe carries the song that is totally undercut by what Trimble describes as villainous lyrics. Try to start a new life, and you'll see that it will begin again. In my mind, that's the most accessible song on the album. It's funny that, like, the first two songs he recorded are probably the most straightforward. I, they're still not very straightforward, but... That's where he still, he had the most of that Beatles, Monkeys sort of vibe going. And he 
quickly veered away from that. It's like that year that he quit, he he really was trying to make a different sound. He really was trying to sound more original, and he did it. The truth of the matter is that Bob Trimble probably existed in the middle. Neither madman nor genius, just a real kid who loved music and had a vision of how it should sound, and worked damn hard to record that sound. When asked why he wrote such unique songs, Trimble responded, There's a void that music fills for me from all of life's experiences that takes me out of the black hole in space that's sometimes surrounded by black clouds into a happier, more peaceful place. The universe righted a wrong by finally allowing Bob Trimble to find the audience he sought as a kid. Though he might never be the fifth Beatle, turns out he was so much better. While in no way lessening Bob Trimble's albums, there are a few others like him who have spent time trying to release themselves into the world via music created at their own expense. Lots of these people poured everything they had into those spinning vinyl discs, desperately hoping there were more people like them out there. It was much harder then to find people who had the same ideas, especially if your ideas aren't in line with most and have been trampled time and time again. Beautiful albums by people like Bob Trimble are out there. Here are some of the ones that have been discovered, and who knows what hasn't yet. Similar to Trimble and their rediscovery stories are Michael Yonkers and Gary Higgins. Higgins' 1973 Ode to Dope in Prison, Red Hash, is one of the best private press albums of all time, and was recorded in a hurry as he was heading into a nearly three-year jail term for weed. That album was reissued by Drag City in 2008. Lyrically and musically, it's a wonderful record. And in another timeline, Higgins would have been given a recording contract without question. Michael Yonkers, whose collection of songs mostly recorded in 1969, Micro Miniature Love, was reissued by Sub Pop in 2003. Unlike Tribble and Higgins, Yonkers' output was nearly unstoppable for a while. He released, on his own label, five albums in the early to mid-70s. Many times, these cult treasures are considered such more because of their scarcity and not necessarily the music. Higgins and Yonkers could easily have been big-time rock musicians. They just strayed too far into the unintentionally odd category that makes people too uncomfortable. Sound the horn and ring the bell Heaven's turning into hell Life is turning into death. Oh, struggling for every breath. Bob Desper released a sorrowful album in 1974 called New Sounds. The album was completed in a single take and features two songs that could easily compete with the saddest songs you've ever heard. 
His song, To a Friend of Mine, reminds me of the very best punches in the gut that Bill Callahan provided occasionally when he was using the smog moniker. Here's a clip of that Bob Desper song. He said, I cannot tell you, friend. It's like showing to the blind. But I know a place I know. Like Desper, Perry Leopold made an incredible album of songs using just his voice and a guitar. Leopold added one item that Desper probably didn't. Lots and lots of LSD. Leopold's album, Experiment in Metaphysics, was recorded beneath a shoe store in 1974, and most of the 300 copies were given away to strangers on the streets of New York by Leopold. Dave Bixby released a harrowing album called Ode to Quetzalcoatl, which is a world-weary religious examination by a desperate loner. It's equally beautiful and troubling for a man who found salvation, but still reeks of despair. Life used to be good. Now look what I've done. I've ruined my temple with drugs. My mind is stuck. On the other end of that spectrum is Eddie Callahan, a power-pop Hare Krishna. His record, False Ego, is full of quirky, mystical songs which, like Trimble, use a whole bag of studio tricks and electronic devices to fill out his good-time hooky folk rock. last guy we're going to mention is Fane Jade, who released an album called Introspection, a Fane Jade recital. Not privately pressed, but on the minuscule label called RSVP Records in 1968. Pretty bizarre affair, even for 1968. Jade was a forgotten legend of the Boston psych scene, much like Trimble. Also like Trimble, original copies of the record run well over a thousand dollars.
I think Bob Trimble, we, we kind of touched on this, but I think it's important to kind of say that we were using him kind of as an emblem for all private press as these isolation records, because they truly are. But one kind of great thing is that it seems like labels are more willing to take chances with reissuing these guys now. You know, Drag City, Secretly Canadian, Sub Pop, they've all at least adopted one of these guys to put out their records. And it seems to be pretty successful. Absolutely. I think that's even one of the things that is right in Light in the Attic's wheelhouse is finding some of these and putting them out. And even Numero, they've done a really good job with with a few of these that Circuit something, I can't think of the name. Circuit Rider. Oh, thank you. So even Numero has done a really good job with some of these doing their like Ladies of the Canyon and the Circuit Rider and a lot lot of smaller label stuff or even just private press stuff, obviously, it seems to be a pretty good industry for some to find these records, find out, kind of check them out, see how good they are, and put them out. It's great to hear all of this weird music. And we, obviously, we spent hours talking about this in the private press episode, and we probably had, could have gone on for three or four more episodes pretty easily on that. There's so much out there. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's great. But it is a huge world to get into and there's a lot of stuff that is kind of fun to read about but not so interesting to listen to bob trimble is not one of those people though his music is really good yeah and kind of following up with the paisley underground his stuff is really not too far off from what kind of the paisley underground i mean it's a little bit more psych ish but he used a lot of that same sort of stuff that One Mile song actually does sound a lot like a 3 o'clock song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's really good stuff, and, and I encourage you, if you're interested, go back and listen to episodes 15 and 16. We cover it more in detail and kind of talk about the whole process. And there, it's a world, It is a world to discover. Fortunately, there are labels who are kind of taking this on. You know, it's a great success. I mean, think about, like, Rodriguez or Jim Sullivan. Those records are huge, and... You know, Rodriguez had the movie about him. I mean, they all kind of fit in this category, and it's just to varying degrees of getting put back in the spotlight. You know, Bob Trimble can tour and make some money off playing his music now, and Rodriguez is a pretty big star. And then, of course, there's people who are just gone, and that's sad too. But it's an interesting um, game to play. You know, if you look at it from kind of a business perspective, it's it's strange. Hopefully the ones that have been reissued and are still around have found some measure of validation, knowing that what they did was music that people wanted to hear. We just weren't ready yet, maybe, or it didn't get to the right person at the right time. But finally, they do know that it was worth making. Absolutely. Yeah, you just have to be so lucky to make it. I mean, You have to be good and work hard, but you still have to be lucky, it seems. All right. Would you like to move into playing a couple songs? Absolutely. I'll never be a bully, I'll never be an idiot. 
play the first song. This is Before the Snowfall by the Sixth Station.
right, that was the sixth station with Before the Snowfall. That was a uh, originally a private press release in 1983 called uh, the album was called Deep Night. I have a reissue by Numero that was done in 2013. Joe was just mentioning about how Numero has put out some really good uh, private press stuff. This is one of them. This is kind of right in line with what we've been talking about. 30-something-year-old priest in rural Illinois named Tony Trosley just wrote some songs and got some guys who played instruments and recorded this whole album in one night in a chapel. And it's an unusual <laughs> it's an unusual uh, Christian rock album that he's kind of got this crazy phaser drenched 12 string guitar that he was using and uh, i don't think there's any acoustic guitars which is definitely not normal for that christian rock acoustic guitar is one of the big things and it's not overtly christian so i think there's sort of like kind of the more of a mystical timelessness to it so i think that appeals to any sort of listener it's definitely got kind of a neil young vibe I love the song. It really gets in your head and just kind of stays with you. It's just a really cool song. Yeah, it sounds a lot like Neil Young when you first played it for me. Like the first 30 seconds or so, it's like, okay, this is okay. And then it gets better and better and better. And then like two hours later, I'm still thinking about the song. It's really good. Yeah. Do you know if they made other albums? No, I don't think so. At least it's not in the Acid Archives or anything. Okay. I don't know. The whole album is really good. I, I particularly love this song, and I think this is kind of one of those songs that's that really stands apart, and it's just a song that I think in a different context would have been much, much bigger. Yeah, it's a really, really good song. All right. For the next and final song of the episode, I'm going to play Mythological Blues by Ernest Rogers. In this day and time when we're on the go, we're apt to think that the ancients were slow, but just jump back 10,000 years and it beats anything the modern man hears. To think the sights of the modern day ought to carry all the latest news, but believe me, boy, they had a time when they played the mythological blues. Hercules pulling all the caveman stuff, treating all the women powerful rough. And when it came to speed, that Mercury boy was way out in the lead. Cyclops with that one big eye, vamped all the women till they thought they'd die. Volusites, old Jupiter's bottom, seeing sweet Venus doing black bottom. Oh, take me back 10,000 years when they played the mythological blues. Fashions then pleased the most exacting men. They were snappy then as now. There wasn't much of them and high. August was a lucky bird, as the folks today surmise. Think of what he must have seen 
looking through a hundred eyes. Hercules pulling all the caveman stuff, treating all the women powerful rough. And when it came to speed, that Mercury boy was way out in the lead. Old Cyclops with that one big eye vamped all the women till they thought they'd die. Of all the sports, just give me Hector. He gave fair Helen wine and nectar, N-E-C-T-A-R, nectar. Oh, take me back 10,000 years when they played the mythological blues. Played the mythological blues. All right, that was Ernest Rogers with his song, Mythological Blues. That is from a compilation on Tompkins Square Records called Turn Me Loose, Outsiders of Old Time Music, which was released in 2013. And it's a compilation of recordings of vernacular music, which is just music played by people in natural settings, sort of. Most people just say folk, but that's what the album is full of, and just kind of weirdos, too. The album was curated by Frank Fairfield, who's a fiddle, banjo, and guitar player and singer who has a lot of really good albums out himself. Ernest Rogers actually wrote that song, and it was recorded in 1928, which I think is unbelievable based on how cleaned up that record sounds. I don't know what they did to it, but I've heard... A really good copy of the original 78 doesn't sound this good at all. So I don't know how they did it, but that makes it sound very contemporary. Ernest Rogers composed the song in 1919 while he was a student at Emory University in Atlanta. He was primarily a newspaper and radio journalist, and he went on to become a really well-known Atlanta newsman on the Atlanta radio station WSB, and the WSB is funny because it it stands for Welcome South, brother. <laughs> <laughs> he started recording his songs in 1925, and this one was one of his last from 1928. He recorded a total of 12 sides. Nine of them were originals, which was unusual at the time. And the style that he recorded in, it was a sound that people couldn't really narrow down or pin down and so they ended up calling it city billy okay not something i'd ever heard of his songs are public domain so if anybody liked it i I could put a link up uh in our show notes so you can just download them they're really good and he's got really great lyrics like this one is kind of fun uh not incredibly serious but he has some really amazing lyrics in his originals they're really worth hearing he's got a great voice very enchanting songs yeah i I enjoyed that song a lot it's cool to think about how there was even outsider weirdos back in the day you know yeah there's all there's always been those guys on the edges of town that turn me loose album is full of that kind of stuff yeah most of the stuff on these albums are instrumentals some of those instrumentals are really crazy like i played one for you that where that guy was with a banjo i've never heard a banjo played like that it's all over the place i hadn't heard anything like that either and the banjo was it's like the banjo was on fire it was just it was crazy sounding i don't know yeah and at times it sounded like it was being played in reverse almost yeah it's hard it was hard to it's hard to explain so all right great song 
So I think we're going to uh, wrap it up here. As always, we want to say thank you to Pantheon Podcast. That's our podcast network. Uh, they give us a lot of support, and uh, we're happy to be uh, among so many great like-minded podcasts. If you are into music, definitely want to stroll over to Pantheon and see what other podcasts might tickle your fancy. We mentioned this a little bit last time, but we want to say again that we've we've had some really great great responses from people just kind of reaching out, emailing us, send us a Facebook message, tweeting at us, and just wanted to kind of give a shout out to a couple people. Uh, one is Ryan. Ryan's been listening for a long time, and uh, he uh, he sent us a couple messages, and we've we've talked, and you know, given him some recommendation. He's kind of he seems like a great guy, and. He always has kind of encouraging words for us, which means a lot that, you know, somebody's listening and, and really likes it. And so I want to say, hey, Ryan, thanks for thanks for listening. And also Philip, he's reached out a couple times and and he said he's really enjoyed the show. So we appreciate you listening. He's in, I think, Croatia or somewhere crazy. So uh, that's awesome. Which is which one of those is the one that I don't like at all? I'll tell you off air. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of our two fans you flip a coin i just cut our fan base in half <laughs> uh, no we appreciate you guys we appreciate you listening and reaching out and please anybody else who listens uh let us know we love to hear from people and if you have ideas i know ryan mentioned um at some point maybe joe and i kind of put out a list of our of our favorite records or essential records and i said that might be something we do sometime i know mine changed so much sort of hard but i bet if we put our heads together we could we could come out with a highway hi-fi starter pack of 25 great records you should listen to that maybe you haven't heard or something like that that you know we could probably do another mix and post it and put a link up yeah let's do this if you want um our first mix just reach out on any any medium, and we will get you the link for that. These are songs I don't think we played on the show, but are songs from our private record collections that we think are great. And maybe we'll start a new one, too, so we'll send you that one, too. But I know we sent it out to a few people. We'd love to get it out to a few more people. They're pretty good. I mean, I really enjoyed our first mixes. It was a lot of fun to make them. We each completed one side, and it was like, 45 minutes per side so it could fit on a mixtape. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So uh, let us know if you want the first one and maybe we'll come out with um, a second one here soon. Yep. And if anybody does want to reach out and ask for a mix, you can do that on Twitter, Instagram. Our handle on both of those play, both of those sites is Highway Hi-Fi Pod. You can ask us about a mix on Facebook or talk to us about anything. We have a Facebook page. You can email us. Our email address is highwayhifipodcast at gmail.com. One, one other small request is uh, if you can, um, rating us on all the pod things is apparently really good, so do that. But more importantly, maybe tell a friend or let somebody know that you um, like this podcast. And if you can, that would be great for us. We... You certainly aren't trying to get rich and famous off this, but we do love to have people listen to it. It means a lot to us. So, 30 years from now, 
some podcast collector's going to go through some cheap bin and find our <laughs> podcast, and we'll be back on tour. <laughs> well, it's going to be a picture of me holding a gun and my microphone. <laughs> like, who is this crazy guy? Mine will be a mugshot. <laughs> Yours will be you with a goat unicorn. <laughs> Which is why I have a mugshot. <laughs> the, the, the last picture before your mugshot. All right. Well, we appreciate you listening, and we'll see you next time. What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.